0: Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston.
1: And I'm Jason.
0: Jason, what's new in your world?
1: Pretty happy to report that we're getting close to being done with harvest here with our plots. Yesterday was a little interesting. We had really high winds and that's always a little bit nerve-wracking when there's a lot of bean dust and it's super dry and it's building up on the combine. You never know what might happen.
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I'm also about done with harvest. Soon I can tuck the combine safely back into the shed for the year um, and put a bow on it, which I think everybody's ready to put a bow on 2020 at this point.
1: The fun part for us is when harvest is done, we get to peruse the data and and go through it and see what we've learned.
0: For sure. That's the best part. So for today's podcast episode, we're going to do something a little bit different rather than have a guest on. um, We thought it would be interesting to chat a little bit about corn. When you think about America, a lot of people associate America with all of the uh, corn that we produce. Fun fact, Jason and I read last night that uh, America's corn acres are larger than the entire uh, landmass of Germany. So we've got quite a few corn acres here in the country. It's about as American as apple pie. Unlike apples, which have a ancestor that looks a lot like an apple, when you think about corn, corn doesn't really have the ancestor doesn't really look like the common variant that we see out in cornfields today. So Jason, we thought today would be interesting to talk a little bit about the history of corn.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, first off, that's an amazing stat that we have more corn acres than than the entire country of Germany. So I, I didn't realize that, but you can find all kinds of cool information when you start researching a subject. As you mentioned, you know, the wild ancestor of corn was kind of a mystery for a long time you know that we have this yellow dent corn that's widely grown across the US and there's nothing that looks like that that grows wild anywhere on the planet so the story of how it was discovered what the ancestor of corn is, is is pretty interesting and and that's something that hopefully the listeners will also find interesting as we talk about it here today
0: absolutely so jason it was kind of a mystery for a while wasn't it the what the ancestor of corn was
1: yeah, that's right, and um, you know there was there was some speculation on it, and there's actually a grass called teosinte. Uh, it's it's native to southern Mexico, and it has some similarities to corn. It uh it's much smaller, it's much thinner stem, like a lot of the wild grasses that we would have around. It has sort of a rudimentary tassel like corn does, and then it also has kind of a stony case that has about five to twelve kernels in it looks nothing like an ear of corn. They, they actually look kind of like little shark teeth or something like that. Yeah, most of the listeners probably know what a corn plant looks like.
0: Uh, one stock, I guess if you don't know what a corn plant looks like, it's probably time to leave your mom's basement and go experience, experience <laughs> the world. But uh, Piosente, like you described, it looks like more like a grass, kind of like a grass you would see in like a landscaping type of a situation. Multiple stocks, and then a seed head at the top with a few kernels. Um, is that an edible
1: crop, Jason? So yeah, Preston, it is an edible crop. If you go back several thousand years ago, it would have been used as a food source uh, to the Native Americans that were living in, in Central America and Southern Mexico at that time. And so, you know, they would have been early plant breeders, so to speak. They would have taken this crop that they use for food, they would grind it into a flower, and they use it to make certain different foods and you know over time they would have picked the ones that had the biggest seed or the most yield and saved that for their seed for the following year so they kind of inadvertently improved it over time and changed it over time. Right when
0: I was researching one thing that I found interesting was it it seems when we look at the archaeological history of maize our current crop it seems like some of those early developments happened quite a long time ago so some of the stats I was reading, it's like, you know, maybe eight or 9,000 years ago is when these Native Americans started producing more of a maize-looking crop rather than the Teosinte. Is that what you found as well?
1: That's interesting. There was a man, Preston, named George W. Beadle, and he was a student at Cornell University in the early 30s. And so at that time, we're talking the 1930s, and at that time, there, you know, as we had kind of mentioned earlier, that it was really a mystery where this corn came from, but there was some thought that it was Teosinte, but um, this man, George Beadle, started doing research to to investigate whether or not Teosinte was, in fact, the ancestor of corn. And he did some work, and he found a lot of evidence that would indicate, in fact, that it was the ancestor. So, um, you know, there's several things. that this chromosomes are very similar between maize and Teosinte. Uh, he was able to cross the two together and develop a fertile hybrid, which kind of led uh, credence to the hypothesis that this was the ancestor of corn. Uh, he actually got some teosinte kernels to pop. So just like uh, modern popcorn, he he got these little hard kernels to actually pop. I'm sure there wasn't uh, a lot there that he could eat, but his conclusion was, yes, they were members of the same species, actually. And modern corn is just a domesticated form of teosinte. For his work he actually won the Nobel Prize in 1958 and later on he became in his career he became the chancellor and president at the University of Chicago.
0: Corn and teosinte are very similar then. I believe there's only four to five genes that are different between corn and teosinte. I think all four of those genes are regulatory genes so they, they the way I like to think about regulatory genes is like a conductor so like a conductor can instruct a bunch of different musicians, and the end result can be different. So if you change the conductor, put a conductor in one orchestra from another to another orchestra, uh, you can have a totally different musical piece. And the same way when you change one of those genes from Piosente to modern hybrid corn, um, you can change a lot of those phenotypic results or visual results in the actual plant. One of those genes is specifically involved with the fruit case. So as you mentioned at the beginning, there's a hard fruit case, which makes it hard to eat Teosinte. When that gene is suppressed or mutated, the the modern day corn doesn't have that hard case anymore. Another gene, um, as we talked about at the beginning, controls, it's, it's called the branching gene. So the suppression of that branching gene basically turns it from a grass plants into more of a, a single stock in its plant
1: structure or
0: orientation.
1: It's really interesting, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, there's really only four or five genes that control the major differences, because after Beetle con- conducted his work and, and won the Nobel Prize, uh, there was actually still some doubt. A lot of scientists didn't believe that that, you know, From If you look at Teosinte, if you look at a picture of Teosinte, I encourage you to look it up, and if you look at modern corn, it's very, very different looking, and the scientists didn't really believe that that much genetic change could occur in a relatively short time of a few thousand years, and when they found that it was only four or five, you know, he found that only four or five genes controlled the differences, it really showed that the domestication, actually, the change from Teosinte to what the corn would have looked like at that time could have happened in, in as little as just a few hundred years, actually. So much, much uh, more compressed time frame than the scientists believe was possible.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It, it kind of sounds like going from a, a wolf to a, a chihuahua in like a, <laughs> a couple of months, you know, or a couple of right. cycles. So yeah. that's uh, crazy to wrap your head around.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you know, people get the impression maybe that because something looks very different, it is genetically very different, and that's not necessarily the case.
0: For sure. So, Jason, we went from Teosinte to uh, one of these early precursors of the modern corn hybrid in uh, what's now Mexico, Central America, Mexico. Um, what happened after that? What were the next developments in the, the development of corn?
1: Over the years, the Native Americans in Mexico and in the, and what is now the US continued to make improvements. You know, they would have, as I mentioned before, saved the best ears. Maybe they, there would be a disease come through and it would wipe out some of the crop. And so you'd, over time, develop maybe some disease resistances. You know, they weren't doing it in such a targeted manner as, as modern plant breeders do, but they definitely were making improvements. And corn was widely cultivated across North America. Um, up until the time when when the Europeans started arriving in North America. And we've all heard the story of when the pilgrims came and how the Indians then taught them how to plant corn. And and that's a really, um, I think, fascinating story. Absolutely.
0: Were the pilgrims
1: early adopters? Did they take corn back to Europe and start breeding it there as well? Yeah, they did bring it back to Europe then eventually. The interesting part of the story, I think there's some human interest part of the story We've all basically heard the story of how the Wampanoag taught the pilgrims how to grow corn and and we've all heard of, of Squanto. You know, it's coming up to the time of the year when we talk about Thanksgiving. Uh, Squanto was a was a Native American. Uh his name was actually Tisquantum, but that was probably a little harder for the Europeans to say, so they kinda of shortened it to Squanto. And his history is is there's some some historical references to him. He traveled to England in 1605 and was there for about 10 years. It's a little unknown how he, you know, how that came about, that he went there and came back if, if he was. really, Yeah, huh. I'm not sure if he went as a slave or, you know, as, a, as kind of a, a voluntary thing. It's a little unclear, but obviously over that time, he learned English. Um, he came back to America in 1613, and then he was kidnapped and taken to Spain as a slave in 1614. So, you know, he was right back in Europe. Oh, wow. And uh, he, he, yeah, it's it's really amazing. He went back and forth several times. There was an explorer named Thomas Dermer. Then somehow he had made his way to England and he came to Newfoundland with him and then uh, went back to England again and finally came back to America in in 1619. So he traveled back and forth quite a bit. You know, we don't think of some of the, the natives at that time of going back and forth like that, but Maybe his story is unique, maybe it wasn't, but he had quite a bit of experience with the Europeans prior to uh, the time of the pilgrims. Wow, that's interesting. And
0: so the way I understand it, uh, pilgrims were actually struggling in this, this new world, the Americas. They weren't able to grow proficiently a lot of the crops they brought with them from Europe. And the Native Americans providing this new commodity, maize, basically allowed them to survive and thrive in this new world. Is that accurate? Yeah, that,
1: that's definitely my understanding, Preston. Um, you know, 50% of the pilgrims actually died in the first year, so it was rough for them. And, and as you mentioned, these crops they brought with them were not really adapted to growing in this new world. They, you know, the soil's different in, in England, and they just were, were really struggling. And thankfully for them, Squanto and uh, his fellow, you know, he was actually not a Wampanoag, but he he had been captured by them after he came back from uh, his final trip to Europe and found his village abandoned. Um, so he was actually a, a, a captive of them, but he was used as a translator because he was so fluent in English, and a lot of the natives at that time could not speak to the, the Europeans. So he taught them then how to plant, you know, him and the, him and his uh, captors taught the pilgrims how to plant corn. They'd clear the ground. Um, there was a saying that, you know, to plant corn when the oak leaves are as big as mouse ears. So that was, I guess, a traditional saying that they taught the pilgrims. And then they would dig holes, you know, it was very different from a cornfield today. They'd dig holes about three feet apart. They'd put a fish in the hole, maybe a couple fish, they'd cover it partially. And then they'd put four or five seeds above the fish. An interesting side note, you can imagine they had a lot of dogs probably running loose and things like that at that time. And they would actually tie the dog's paws up, one of its paws up near its neck, so that it wouldn't be able to dig up the fish. So for about a month, all the all the dogs in the in the settlement would hobble <laughs> around, you know, on three legs. So <laughs> wow, yeah. kind of interesting. That's crazy. I've yeah. never heard that before. Yeah, uh, huh. interesting mental picture, kind of, of all the dogs, you know, <laughs> sniffing the fish but not able right. to get at it.
0: Right. What did corn look like at this point, or maize?
1: So, it, so this if, point if, in history. Yeah. So if people are familiar with Indian corn, basically, that's what it would have looked like. It was not the dent corn that we use today. It had a harder shell, a little bit more similar to popcorn, but with a bigger kernel. And then they'd, you know, of course, harvest it, dry it down, make it into flour and cornmeal, and they'd use it for cooking and baking. So another interesting side note, Preston, you know, everybody's familiar with the author, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And uh, he was a little bit of a kind of a corn buff. He was interested in corn history. And he actually claimed this open pollinated corn variety uh, kind of as his own. He gave it his own name. So there's a, there's a variety that you can get today. It's called Longfellow, which is very, very similar, if not the one that the Indians would have taught the pilgrims how to plant. Huh. So if the, at the time of the pilgrims, corn looked a lot like modern-day popcorn
0: or didn't really look like what we currently grow in our corn fields across the country. Uh, what what did that progression look like? How did we get to what we currently grow?
1: So over time, as is natural, just like um, in different parts of the country, we, we speak differently. You know, everybody has a little bit different accent uh, in different areas. Um, the same thing kind of happened with corn where, you know, in one region of the country, as you isolate and, and continue to save plants back from the seed that you have the corn changes a little bit so in different areas of the country there were different types of corn and over time you know it started to look a little different in different areas and so um by the mid 1850s they were growing some more dent looking corn in the in the ohio area and uh there was actually a man named robert reed and he and his son james moved from ohio to delavan illinois in tazlow county in 1846 And they brought with them a corn hybrid called Gordon Hopkins, which is a big, late, red-colored corn. So it is also, again, not like the yellow dent that we grow today. Um, It takes about 120 days to mature. And they they liked that uh, variety, and they brought it, and they planted it. And um, it turned out that they had a really poor stand. It wasn't as well adapted for the area in central Illinois as it was in where they had come from in Ohio. And so they ended up replanting with a with a you know they, was later in the season their corn didn't come up so they filled in the holes with a yellow dent called little yellow that was really grown widely in Tazewell County at that time which was actually an 80 day corn and so this is a it's a wide difference in maturity but given that they planted this early corn so late um, they actually got some natural crossing between the two varieties and they started noticing that there's this really good corn variety and James the son actually took this corn and over the course of fifty years worked with it to really improve it. So just to clarify, when these farmers went back
0: and replanted this yellow corn amongst the red cornfield that had poor a poor stand, was the resulting yield increase observed in the progeny of this seed. So these plants all went to seed they crossed and the next year the yields were were higher than normal. Or just help me make sense of that, Jason.
1: Yeah, so they would have saved back their seed, obviously, like you said. And then um, in the following year, um, they noticed that, you know, there, there was some nice uh, improvements there. And they continued to select the best ones over over years. Now, they didn't know anything about hybrids at that time yet. But they continued to save back the best seed and improve this variety. This actually, they did this, or James did this for 50 years. And in 1891, he entered this Reed's Yellow Dent at the Illinois State Fair. So this was a really long process. Um, And he actually won the highest award at the Illinois State Fair that year. And then in 1893, he entered it in the World's Fair. And he actually averaged 100 bushels. He yielded 100 bushels per acre at a time when the national, you know, the average corn yield was about 25 bushels an acre. So this thing was four times better than anything else that was out there.
0: Wow. So I guess just to clarify, so this was still not a hybrid variety, this was a just a hybrid that he selected over a long period of time?
1: That's right. This would have been open pollinated uh, corn seed. It was It was not a hybrid. Um, you know that, that first year technically would have been a hybrid, but as I mentioned they didn't know anything about hybrid breeding at that time and he just ca- captured this open pollinated. So um, you know we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between hybrids and open pollinated things. Um, the best way to think about an open-pollinated variety is is more like an heirloom. Which heirloom vegetables sometimes sometimes are popular for their flavor. Sometimes people say they have better nostalgia. flavor. Right. There's nostalgia there, exactly. But when we talk about yield and and really producing a lot, I I don't know I don't know about you, Preston, but um, I planted some some heirloom tomatoes in my garden one year, expecting to try them out, and uh, I actually planted quite a few plants and. I don't think I got a single tomato off of any of them. So um, there's a lot of benefits to to hybrids and the improvements that we've made, you know, sometimes acknowledge that sometimes plant breeders at at times have left behind flavor and there might be a flavor difference in that heirloom. But when you're talking about mass production to to feed a lot of people, um, hybrids are an important part of that system.
0: That's interesting. When in the scope of maize or corn history, when do hybrids start popping up or hybridization of,
1: of corn? Reed's Dent plays an important part in that history so starting you know in the in the late 1800s this James Reed he would ship out small packets of seed across the U.S. and even to foreign countries and farmers would take it they'd plant it in their field and they'd only have a small amount of seed but they'd save all those ears back so they could plant it more widely the following year so they didn't really have a good system for for shipping out you know bags and bags of corn seed like we do today. By 1930, 75% of the nation's corn could be traced back to Reed's Yellow Dent. So it was, it was very widely, widely distributed. Now the problem was, up to the 1930s, um, you know, the USDA started keeping yield information in 1866 for corn. And from 1866 through the mid 1930s, the average yield across the nation did not change. It basically fluctuated right around 25 bushels per acre. For about sixty years, seventy years, and so when plant breeders started discovering hybrids and what hybrids could bring to the table, we really started to see increases in yield and that 's when things really started to take off so there 's a concept called heterosis, also known as hybrid vigor, and uh, basically it 's the tendency of if you take two parents and you cross them, you you end up with something that is superior to either one of the parents and so you know, we see that sometimes, you know, you can think about it with parents where there's two parents um, that are a certain height and their children are taller than either one of them in a lot of cases. Most corn plants have all been uniform from a genetic diversity standpoint.
0: Is there any value in some of those earlier varieties, more of those, I guess, to play devil's advocate, some of those heritage varieties, Do they have value to current modern day breeders?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would... You know, as kind of a history nerd myself, I would argue from a historical perspective, there's always value. But not only that, new diseases pop up, new problems pop up, um, or at least become prevalent in areas where they weren't prevalent before. And uh, plant breeders go and and look at some of this older germplasm or or things that come from across the world or from different areas, and they can use those to identify sources of resistance to some of these diseases and, and other problems and pull them into modern hybrids. So there's absolutely value in keeping these things around. And and the ability to do this is part of the reason for the the increases in yield over the past 50, 60 years. So I had mentioned how through the 1930s the national average was about 25 bushels an acre. With the development of double-cross hybrids um, where they take four parents to create one hybrid, of which when the the initial double-cross hybrids, Reed's Yellow Dent was one of the parents, um, that got us up to a a national average of about 40 bushels by the 1960s. So I'm still not really been busting yields, but by around 1960, the increase really stepped up to just under two bushels a year of increase we've seen since then. So the the, the record yield, you know, we talk about 25 bushels per acre in the 1800s. Uh, The record yield on record is 176.6 bushels per acre in 2017. And I think the latest estimates for 2020, the corn estimate was 178.4 bushels per acre. So we'll see how harvest comes in, but we may set another record again this year.
0: That's exciting. So for the consumers listening out there, why is this important? Why is the chasing of of higher, more efficient corn yields, why is that important to the industry?
1: Yeah, so it's it's important for farmers in, in one way, because, well, in multiple ways actually, but you know, when, when hybrids were adopted, the superiority of the plants really allowed for mechanization. So the plants were more uniform, they stood better, they're healthier, and it allowed farmers to, you know, mechanize things to the, the use of combines and, and uh, you know, all the things that are done today. And And that's important to, to everybody, really, because it helps establish a stable food supply. And, uh, you know, Americans pay uh, less of their income as a percentage for food than anybody else in the world. And these advances that we're talking about are really what brought us to that point. Absolutely. You could also factor in the sustainability standpoint where, I mean, we've got
0: fewer acres to produce more food for a growing population, you know, and to keep prices low, these kind of improvements are are necessary from a sustainability standpoint to make sure we preserve our natural environment.
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah, and, and, and the uh, increases in fertilizer use efficiency and water use efficiency, and there's just been a lot of things in this story that we're talking about. I think we've kind of gotten into another topic here almost, Preston. This could be a, a whole other episode, I believe.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap this. So from Teosinte to modern corn hybrid, uh, there's obviously quite a change over time to get to where we're at with our current corn cropping system. Uh, I think maybe we should just save everything from hybridization, some of the management practices of, of growing corn for a later episode. I think we could chat for probably over an hour about all of those facets of production ag.
1: Yeah, I agree, Preston. I hope I hope the listeners find this information as interesting as I, as I do and as, as I know you do. I, I think it's fascinating to learn about the history and then uh, to talk about some of the, as you said, Down the road, talk about some of the improvements that uh, are currently being made.
0: For the listeners, I think one thing that might be interesting is to go back and listen. If you are interested in plant breeding specifically, we did a series on plant breeding and we talked specifically about the history and some of the future, uh, current and future technologies that companies are utilizing to produce more efficient and higher yielding hybrids. So I would refer the listeners back to some of our earlier podcasts. Maybe, Jason, we can put those links in the show notes below. We thank all of you for listening to this podcast. Hopefully, you learned something about maize, corn. Normally, at the end of a podcast episode, we like to plug our guests. Since, Jason, you were my guest today, and I guess I was also the guest, (laughs) we're going to plug ourselves. I just want to encourage anybody listening to subscribe to our podcast. It really helps the algorithms find us and pick us up in that way. Other people searching for ag-related content can find our podcast. Um, with that being said, if you have any comments or want to share any podcast ideas, reach out to us on Twitter. Just search Focus on Ag on Twitter and you can find our podcast Twitter handle as well as our individual personal Twitter handle.
1: Yeah, Preston, we definitely appreciate any feedback we can get. So we'd, be, we'd love to hear your comments and thank you for listening. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.